0: Uh, we continue on now with our sermon series and branch out we 're going to be in Second Kings chapter Five. If you have a Bible, you can turn there or it will be on the screen for us uh, this morning and again, the idea of branching out this is who we should be as god 's people, reaching out to people who who need to know the love of christ, uh, the pattern that uh, Tom has set out for this, this part of the sermon series is talking about disciples, people who are following Jesus Christ, people who are shaped by the love of Christ, and then how that go, uh, translates into their life. Disciples and X, disciples and poverty will come up, disciples and patriotism. And this morning we're going to talk about disciples and the stranger. Now, Who is a stranger in our context? Well, what I mean by that is folks that are unfamiliar to us and we're unfamiliar to them, people who don't know much about the church except for what they see on TV. Uh, Folks outside the church have all kinds of preconceived notions uh, about Christians and and who we are, who the church is. Uh, We're judgmental, we're anti-science, we're misogynist, we're homophobic, and we have all kinds of preconceived notions about people outside the church, what they're like. they're hedonistic, they're morally adrift. they're hostile to spirituality. Now, I can tell you one thing from my time being a campus minister at the University of South Carolina at Washington University at Penn State, and that the, there are many strangers, there are many people outside uh, the church, and maybe they think that they're too intellectually sophisticated for Jesus or for Christianity, or maybe Uh, They're too busy with their social lives to argue about some fine point of theology. But they do want to talk about spiritual things because they feel their need. They feel their need. That accomplishment in their academic studies or in their personal lives or in their work life does not satisfy This morning, we're going to hear uh, the story of a stranger. He's the commander of the Syrian army at a time when ancient Israel and Syria were hostile with one another. And we're going to see that despite that hostility, despite that, um, I mean, really hot uh, war going on between them, that there is a little girl and the, the faith and compassion of this little Israelite girl to branch out, to care for this Syrian commander changed his life. And maybe as we look at the story, it will change your life as well. 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It's a long reading. I want to get you ready for it. It's a long reading, okay? So settle in for a little bit. Verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory over Syria. And some people think that this is an indication that maybe uh, Naaman was the man, the archer that actually killed the king of Israel, ha- Ahab, in an earlier story. Not, not entirely clear, but, but just want to give you the sense of who this man is. He is not a friend of the nation of Israel, okay? He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Not necessarily Hansen's disease, what we think of a leprosy, but, but a disease of the skin. Very unattractive, very frightening for people because of people thinking they could could catch it just from touching him. Verse 2, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, that's the northern part of Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. This is a lot of money. Not really sure what the 10 chains of clothing is about, but it's a lot of money. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes to sign of of mourning and, and distress and said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the student of Elijah, the man of God, heard of the king of Israel, had had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over me, over the place, and cure the leper. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Perhaps this is a, a reference to the fact that those rivers ran clean and, and, and the, uh, the river that, that, that he was going to be bathing in in Israel maybe wasn't so clean, it looked a little muddy, maybe even swampy. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning and we do ask that as your spirit has been with us, as we sang, as we prayed, that your spirit would continue to be with us as we look at your word, uh, working in us, understanding not simply to the grammatical meaning of the paragraphs and the sentences, but to the spiritual application of this. Father, by your spirit, work in us that we may see what it is to trust in you to branch out and to see you powerfully at work in the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may have already picked this up uh, about me, but I am a fan of baseball. Um, I'm not a Cardinals fan. They're my second love. Philadelphia Phillies. Yeah, I know. I know. It's a sad thing. Philadelphia Phillies are my first love. I had a good friend of mine, a pastor friend here in St. Louis, tagged me in in a post Uh, There was a a Philadelphia Phillies player didn't seem to know the infield fly rule this week and got tagged out, and a friend of mine decided to let me know, and he tagged me in this video. But I love baseball. I I, I love the history of baseball, and, and there's this story that I want to tell you about, about a man named Andre Dawson, perhaps one of the greatest players never to play in the World Series. That's what you get for playing for the Cubs, But Andre Dawson was an outfielder for for the Montreal Expos, Uh, now they're the Washington Nationals, but then they were the Expos, played for the Chicago Cubs. And in uh, July of uh, 1991, the Cubs were playing uh, the Reds, and it was an intense game. The uh, home plate umpire, Joe West, had already thrown out the Reds pitcher uh, for throwing at a batter, okay? You talk about something that gets people riled up is when a pitcher intentionally throws at a batter. So again, emotions were high in this game. And as Dawson came to the plate, he uh, accidentally bumps into Joe West. And uh, there are words exchanged between them. And Dawson ends up with a one game suspension and a thousand dollar fine. Okay. Um, uh, Dawson is not happy about this. He uh, he feels he feels uh, you know disrespected and, and and when he wrote the check and handed it in for his fine the memo line read donation for the blind. <laughs> you know we don't like it when other people hurt us or offend us or offend our sensibilities and we want to you know give them a dig back somehow some little. Some little dig at them to let them know that uh, we're displeased and we do have some power in this situation. It's plain and simple. It's it's an act of revenge. Now, revenge is not a sentiment that's particularly attractive. But in the moment, we're not, we're usually not pretty. We're not not very interested in looking good. We just want to get back at the person who has hurt us. Now, as Christians, um, you know, we're we're more mature than that. We know revenge is not a, a godly sentiment, so, so how do we respond? We say, well, I won't get them, but God will. <laughs> God will get them. As a church looking out at a culture that is increasingly strange uh, to us, people flaunting moral standards, people mocking our faith, demonizing our understanding of family and marriage, uh, should that be our attitude God's going to get them. Last week's sermon, talking about being salt and light, is that what it means? Is that disposition, God will get them? Is that what it means to be salt and light in our culture? We have this little girl, this little Israelite girl, who was taken as a slave by enemies, and now her mistress' husband, a commander in a pagan army that raided her village, he has leprosy, this awful disease. You might expect her to think in her heart, good. God got him. But her disposition is quite different. And so was the disposition of God's prophet, Elisha. What did they want? They wanted to see him restored, healed, and this is what the gospel should produce in us. And by the gospel, I'm talking about God's mercy and love that guarantees our restoration, certainly redemption from sin, but, but the hope of the resurrection that will be fully redeemed, even physically, not just spiritually, but physically. This is what the gospel should produce in our life. Active engagement of outsiders, of strangers, that they might come to know the same restoration that we know, even in this life. And to see the gospel shape us this way, it begins with the desire, uh, the longing to see others healed, uh, restored, forgiven. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3 uh, as, as the, the, the writer of, of Kings is talking about this little girl. Now, why would this little girl, carried off in a raid, want anything good to happen to Naaman, uh, a commander of, of, of the army that's the enemy to Israel, perhaps even the man who killed the king of Israel? The idea of forgiving family, the idea of forgiving uh, other Christians, that's hard. It's hard for us. We feel the weight of it, though. I mean, we're, we're brothers and sisters. We're in family together. We feel the weight of it, but it's hard. Why in the world would we spend our energies trying to work hard to forgive people we don't even know? Strangers people who don't share our values, people who don't share our view of the world, and maybe are actively mocking us. The answer comes to us in Romans chapter 5. For while we were enemies, you and me, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Ephesians chapter 2, remember that You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Why should we care about strangers? Because God loves strangers. God loved us when we were strangers. And this little girl knows the love of God, and it's poured out in her life in this simple desire to see the suffering around her remedied, to be for her, for her mistress' husband to be cured of his leprosy. She's lost a lot in her life at the hands of the Syrian army. But she can look past that, past her own circumstances, and empathize with her mistress and with her mistress's husband. She empathizes with Naaman, and she comes with a longing for his healing. And that's what we should have. We should have a longing for strangers to know restoration, even if they've hurt us, even if we have some resentments towards them. So the question for all of us is where are we feeling stuck in empathizing with strangers in feeling resentments towards strangers? Maybe stuck just feeling nothing towards people who are outsiders of the church. Is it the academic that you've come in contact with who you think is just too smart for Jesus? Or maybe it's the career obsessed, too busy for the foolishness of church? Or maybe it's a gay or transgender 20-something that as you've talked to them, all they have is, 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 is uh, um, a judgmental attitude because they think Christians are hateful and oppressive. Or maybe it's resentment towards the Middle Eastern refugee. Now don't hear me suggesting anything about politics or ways to address these problems in our society. I'm simply talking about our disposition. What is our heart towards these people? Because this heart of indifference or even resentment isn't just for the person we necessarily think are way outside stranger, maybe it's your neighbor whose dog keeps pooping in your yard. This person doesn't share my values. I care about my property and my lawn. But God calls on us to branch out to strangers, to others, to the other, other than us. Because he loves them. He wants to restore them. He wants to preserve them. That was the whole idea of uh, of salt, the image of salt used in last week's sermon that Jesus talks about being salt and light. And salt is a preservative okay? We want to be a preservative. But there are other things that preserve. Do you have anything else that preserves? This is a time when you can respond back to me. What are some other preservatives? Vinegar? Vinegar. (laughs) That's a good one. Ice? Ice. Smoke? Okay. you can smoke things. Sugar? Anybody ever hear of formaldehyde? Formaldehyde is a preservative of sorts. Uh, salt preserves while seasoning. And the other, to say the very least, preserves and leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It's toxic, actually. And how much of us taking a stand for God, in our minds, saying we're going to preserve God's word in our culture is really an expression of resentment towards the other. It's an expression of resentment towards the stranger. How much... Of our desire to preserve is formaldehyde instead of salt. We need to go back to the openness of this child, to the, to the openness of our own pastor. If you remember the story that he told a couple of weeks ago, we were canvassing uh, the, the nearby neighborhoods and he's out with Anthony Luster and they knock on a door and someone comes to the door and they ask, hey, do you have a church home? And the person, Anthony Luster says, do you have a church home? And the person says, well, we're atheists here. And then he turns to Tom and says, Tom, you have anything to say to that? And Tom says, we love atheists at Green Tree. Do we love the stranger? This little girl lets her empathy move her to seek Naaman's healing, to tell him of the prophet who can bring healing. That's what we see in the story in verses 4 through 6. Naaman hears about this, and so he goes and he secures permission from his king for a formal diplo- for a He's basically, you know, he's, he's the general of an enemy army, so he's got to go through diplomatic channels. He's got to have permission to come into the country so that his presence doesn't provoke a skirmish of some sort or some sort of international incident. Um, and he gets it. And not only does he get it, he comes with resources. He comes with money. And then we see another challenge in accepting the stranger in our lives. Sometimes we have to get over our resentments. But also, once we get past that emotional uh, roadblock, accepting the stranger into our life, interacting with the stranger can bring disruption. It disrupts sometimes the equilibrium that we have. Now, you and I, we have all kinds of stresses in our lives. There's a big stress coming up next Friday. Everybody know what it is? Tax day. <laughs> Some of you are very responsible to have your taxes done. Many of us do not. <laughs> we have an equilibrium in our life, and we're trying to work through the stresses, and the last thing we want is something unexpected coming in, throwing off that equilibrium, throwing off the balance. And the king of Israel, he, there's these tensions with Syria. Evidently, they've reached some sort of um, you know, balance right now. There's not open war with them. Um, But then Syria makes this request. Hey, we have a very important person, a general in our army wants to come, and I want you to have him healed. It's the last thing the king of Israel wants. What? You're making a formal diplomatic request on something that I know that I can't deliver on? And he says, they're looking for a fight with me. They're disrupting the equilibrium. His bandwidth, it's so overloaded, he becomes conspiratorial. This is a way that they're going to pick a fight with me. And sometimes we just reject the stranger because we say, I don't have the bandwidth. I do not have the time, the energy to deal with something new in my life. Sometimes as a church, we can feel that way. We got lots of stresses. We got lots of things going on. We got to figure out how to pay for the budget. We got to figure out how to pay for the mortgage. We got to figure out how we're going to staff this and do that. We don't need to take on anything new. Inviting the stranger in disrupts equilibrium. And maybe even worse, sometimes inviting the stranger in is a disruption in the sense that that they offend our sensibilities. Naaman comes with money. He seeks to pay for this healing. And we see some conversation about the money uh, in, in those verses. And there are times when when that stranger comes with a sense of need and the way they're expressing their need or to look to have their, that deep need met, it, it's, it's not only foreign to us, it's offensive. There's a pastor in Kansas City, um, Jason uh, Morris, of Westside Family Church. They started something new. They started what they called an online campus. Now, uh, I'm not sure what I think about online campuses and, and, and sort of the impersonal nature of it. Uh, but I'd really like the disposition of this pastor of wanting to reach out. And uh, he, Jason told, there was a story that happened in Jason Church that I want to share with you, and I, I pulled this out from an article. It said, said this, Jason trained his leaders that first interactions with internet participants could be interpreted in many ways, so don't assume, assume the worst, such as the man from Pakistan who, who entered West Side's online church with this comment, I need sex. And I can tell you, you know, having worked with websites and, and, and making it with to the comments, there are lots of things that come in to websites that are just like, what in the world? Is this person just being rude and disruptive? Could certainly be interpreted that way. Rather than reject the participant, a westlight online chat artist, I'm not even sure what that term means, <laughs> directed the man into a private prayer session where he confessed his real needs. That was a cry for help, Jason says. The first thing he said when he got into a private prayer session was, I am a sinner, I need help, here's what's happening with my my fiancé, here's what's happening with me, I can't stop, please help me. You know, when people walk through the door's of our church or any church, whether it's the an internet church or this sanctuary. We don't know if this is their first time they've ever been to church. Uh, we don't know if singing or reciting a creed or, 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 or just sitting there while other people are praying for what seems forever to them. We, we don't know exactly how they're responding to that even in a relaxed church environment such as ours. We may assume a certain decorum, you know, People don't just call out from the congregation at uh, Green Tree Church. And maybe we're disrupted when uh, someone does something like that. Whatever we do, though, we need to extend hospitality. We need to show acceptance into our presence, into our lives, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. We always begin with the stranger by being hospitable, which means accommodating ourselves to them. That's a hard thing, but it's what it means to branch out. And beyond hospitality, beyond accepting being disturbed, we may have to endure tensions. We may have to endure misunderstandings, even rude outbursts. You know, many years ago, I was um, talking with an old high school friend. We were the best of buddies. We were street hockey, you know, partners, um, uh, shared everything in our lives, but he went off college, went one way, went to Wharton business school. I went off to art school and later became an engineer. That's a whole other story. And when we got back years later, we began talking about our career choices in life. He, he had been in business now. He's making a shift. He became very interested in physics and he was studying, uh, uh to, uh, for a PhD in physics. I had gone into ministry and he asked me some about what I was doing in my discipleship groups. Um, teaching the gospel. And he was an unchurched guy, so he didn't know very much. And I talked about our need for God's grace. I talked about depravity, talked about judgment, but also talked about grace. Now, he had become a student of Ayn Rand. Are you familiar with Ayn Rand? Anybody? She wrote the book Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead. A book and a philosopher, she called herself an objectivist, which is just a form of logical positivism, um, they're very influential, particularly in conservative and libertarian uh, movements. But at the core of, of her um, uh, uh, her philosophy was the idea of the goodness of man and the highest good of self-interest. Uh, a crass way of uh, describing her philosophy is, would be from, uh, a good way to describe it would be Gordon Gecko's line from Wall Street, Greed is good. And, and she, she's quoted as saying that, If any society, if any civilization is to survive, it must do away with this notion of altruism. Okay? So when I told my friend, I teach young minds, young souls about their depravity, he reacted. He became enraged. And I can remember the words clearly. He says, I can't believe you would undermine belief in self. I have no respect for those beliefs. And if you teach them, I have no respect for you. And they heard those words. It was one of my oldest friends. When we talk to the stranger, when we begin sharing with them the gospel, they may react. At first. And we certainly see Naaman reacting in ways which are very negative towards Elisha. Elisha sends a servant to ask Naaman to bathe in the Jordan. And again, somehow Naaman takes offense at this. Maybe the Jordan is a, a, a swampy near his house. Maybe it's just not as clear. It's, a, it's, a, it's muddy in those places. We don't know. But, but Elisha doesn't even come out to talk to Naaman. He sends a servant. Um, and Naaman's insulted, it strikes at his pride. I came all this way, and he can't even come out to say hello to me? And he leaves in a rage. And we're gonna have to, we may have to endure this kind of territory if we're going to see people healed, not just of physical illness, but also of their spiritual illnesses. Naaman, he's a man of valor, the Scripture says, of discipline, of high position. And he does not come as a beggar before Elisha. I mean, he has talents. He has 6,000 shekels of gold. But that's the problem, isn't it? Because he does not see himself as a beggar. And that's what we all are, really, before God. What do we have to offer God? Nothing. We're all beggars. He wants to buy this mercy, this grace, but he can't buy it. Because God gives it freely. It's a great explanation of the story in the Jesus Storybook Bible. How many of you are familiar with this particular book? This book is written for children, but I'm telling you, it's great for adults. In the book, there's a, it doesn't tell every story of the Bible, but it tells this story. And it says that God knew that Naaman was even sicker on the inside than on the outside. Naaman was proud. He thought he didn't need God. His heart didn't work properly. It couldn't feel anything. You see, Naaman had leprosy of his heart. God was not only going to heal Naaman's skin, he was going to heal his pride. And there's this moment after Naaman leaves in a rage. His servant goes to talk to Naaman. And in a calmer moment, they persuade him to reconsider. And so Naaman decides to humble himself and do what he is asked. And he finds God faithful. And this is what he says, verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, and all, he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. What is this other than a profession of faith, a conversion? And the stranger becomes a brother. And it started with, a little, with the faith of this little girl who knew God's mercy and showed mercy to an undeserving stranger. Now, Naaman was one to whom he might say, God will get you. God will get you for what you've done. And of course, God did get him. But as is God's way, not in the way we thought. God got him. But God got him back for himself. He won him that he might be a true son. What needs to happen in your heart and in your life to take on this disposition, to looking in the wo- at the world full of strangers, and to love them, and to see God get them, not in vengeance, but in restoration? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to look at your word, and we do pray that you would impress upon us the very heart of this little girl, the very heart that you have, the very heart we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That while we were strangers, while we were far off and estranged, even enemies of you, you loved us and you gave yourself for us. Father, help us to love the stranger, to branch out, to look beyond our resentments, our fears, to be like you. As we sang earlier, to love whom you love. Work that in us this day, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.